people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This is a podcast about fascism, anti-fascism, and the far right. One announcement before we begin: if you're interested in our book club, we're going to announce the first session of it next week. So if you want to get involved, then drop me a message. You can either join the Patreon, where it'll be automatically posted, all the details. Or if you don't want to, or you can't afford um, to subscribe to things, which is quite reasonable, um, then just drop us a message on our Twitter or via email, and uh, we'll get back to you and we'll sort you out. Um, Today, we're joined by Mike from the It's Going Down Collective. Um, They're a long-running anti-fascist US media operation. Um, we had a really good discussion, um, so without further ado, along with the show. Hi Mike, how are you doing today? Good, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, good, thank you. Um, so for those of us in the audience, I, I mean, I know who it's going down now, and I, I use your articles and use your website as a really good resource for finding out about anti-fascism in America and around the world as well. But for people who don't know, what does the It's Going Down Collective do? Sure, It's Going Down is a anarchist media platform. It was launched in the summer of 2015. It's both submission-based, meaning that people can submit things uh, to it, and it produces original content in the form of columns. We also produce a podcast that comes out several times a month. We do long-form pieces, interviews, uh, original research. We also have a radio show that comes out on the Pacifica Network on the west coast in the united states and yeah when it was founded why do you, what was missing that you thought um it's going down was going to kind of fulfill it within the kind of american anti-fascist space well it was interesting because when we started i mean you know the project itself has always been explicitly anarchist you know as it developed uh you know one of the things we became known for was publishing uh original analysis and research and, and republishing too in a lot of ways i mean you know, there's a lot of investigative research and just constant streams of information coming out from the anti-fascist movement. So that became something we were very much known for. Uh, also just covering, you know, the anti-fascist movement as a whole and on top of doing like oppositional research, talking about what people were doing, strategies and tactics that people were employing, talking to different groups, interviewing them, all that stuff. Um I think moreover, what we saw was missing from the the media landscape is, you know, in the United States, there's a lot of very large sort of, I would classify them politically as like progressive outlets that sort of seek to, you know, influence the Democratic Party to be more left in various ways. Um, Or they really have their eyes sort of on like the electoral sphere and social movements and working class self-activity is always kind of seen as something that's like secondary. Whereas we wanted to put that front and center from an anarchist perspective and be very clear about that. And also a lot of the anarchist media that's produced was very much sort of like inward focused and speaking more to the choir. We wanted something that was not only a movement resource, but also something that could interact with and be available for the public. You know, we use the term digital community center and, I think that's very much so uh, what we continue to be. So something that's useful to wider movements, but also very accessible to the public. 
I suppose um, you know, looking at kind of I suppose more more kind of moderate progressive outlets. You know, if you take something like January sixth, you'd see uh, they would see that as like an attack on them on American democratic ideals. And whereas I suppose more anarchist or radical perspective, you'd say, well, what is that democracy that is being upheld and being attacked, and how do we see these forces at play that are kind of, but we are both ho- we are hostile to both of them, right? Yeah, or I mean, there's a hyper focus on the the pro Trump crew on January 6th is just you know being described as you know simply rioting or you know people breaking windows or you know the sum of property destruction or people getting out of control or something like that, which really sets it up to equate you know things like the George Floyd uprising with January 6th, which is just you know totally ludicrous. I mean, one was an expression against, you know, centuries of white supremacy and, you know, structural racism and domination and police terror and people pushing back against that, you know, trying to drive those forces out of their lives and out of their communities. And one was an attempt to install Donald Trump as an unelected dictator of the United States. And, you know, that's really lost in the framing there, of course, by the the central and progressive media, Um, you know, and, you know, we'll talk about later, but, you know, the, the democratic state itself is more interested in preserving, you know, the social peace that comes with, uh, you know, two parties kind of being at the helm of the American state, as opposed to really going in there and going after the forces that allowed that coup to take place, which, you know, came very close to coming to fruition and, a lot of those players are still there very much so and are pushing for something similar. I mean, the Republicans are really seeing the door kind of close on their politics um, and they're looking for, you know, undemocratic ways to solidify power. And, you know, the democratic state in the United States is certainly not holding them accountable. I mean, it's certainly not going through and, and um, going after law enforcement uh, that's sympathetic to far right and fascist groups. And we can talk about that more later if you want. Um, You know, it's not going through the DHS and the FBI. Uh, You know, the state critically needs those forces and it's not going to do something that's going to really, you know, vigorously investigate those institutions. Um, Yeah. Um. I'm sure I'm going to be asking this question quite a lot in the in the coming months and you know probably years, depending how long Twitter lasts for. But you know, Elon Musk has bought Twitter, <laughs> and sh- shocking and shockingly and surprisingly, far from being a free speech fanatic, he is, you know, firstly he's unbanned a lot of um, you know explicitly fascist, far right, and otherwise reactionary accounts, and then you know, in his true free speech principles, has turned his ban hammer on uh, anarchist, anti-fascist. Uh, leftist accounts. Uh, there's a guy called Chad Luder. Um I think they were uh, banned um, very, you know, kind of deliberately. And of course, you guys as well have been banned from Twitter in one of uh, Musk's perks. I think on the instigation of Andy No, who's a, a fascist journalist uh, in America. Um, how do you, you know, you, you said before that um, part of the point of the collective is to um, be a kind of outward-facing thing uh, for people who are not anarchists or not anti-fascists to kind of come across. How do you think, how does the, the banning from Twitter affect you guys? And overall, what effect do you think, you know, this is Elon Musk kind of new policies are going to have? Well, I mean, 
you know, I think it's interesting because uh, we're starting to use Mastodon a lot more and the organic reach on Mastodon is a lot uh, better than Twitter. Uh, so in terms of like hits, actually our hits have gone up. Uh, people have mentioned something called the Streisand effect. It's negative in the sense that I think that in a lot of ways, a lot of the anti-fascist and, and anarchist accounts, what they were able to do is they were able to really kind of put into the ether the fact that there are social struggles happening. There are different voices that are outside of, you know, the far right that are outside of the political center that are, you know, beyond progressive uh, left or, you know, liberal left. And, you know, especially, uh, you know, when stuff would blow up on Twitter that, that we would post or crime think that was also banned, which is a long running anarchist publishing platform puts out books and magazines and stuff like that. Uh, or, you know, people like Chad Loader, who's an investigative anti-fascist that does a lot of amazing research. Uh, you know, that stuff was hard for the press to really kind of just brush under the table or forget about. So, I mean, it kind of forced these things to be talked about. Um, you know, it's going down when we were banned. We had like over 108,000 uh, followers. So, I mean, we couldn't just be sort of like brushed aside. Uh, you know, we were kind of seen as, uh, you know, a platform of note that was reporting on contemporary social movements. Uh, so just our ability to talk about stuff and, and kind of put it on the radar for the rest of, uh, you know, for other journalists and other people reporting on the news, I think w was really important. And removing those voices from that platform will definitely make it easier for a lot of, you know, it just makes it easier for a lot of more mainstream journalists to kind of brush aside uh, autonomous social movements happening or things like anti-fascist research, you know, because it's not front and center as much. Um, you know, at the same time, I think a lot of people realize, you know, what's happening at Twitter. I think uh, Musk is really doubling down on making it a far right, you know, safe space, uh, you know, pushing far right conspiracy theories, all that stuff, you know, allowing people like Andrew Anglin back on the platform uh, saying Musk can, or sorry, sorry, saying Trump can come back, uh, you know, just a. Uh, this week, Ali Alexander, who's one of the key architects of the January 6th uh, attempted coup, was like allowed back on, like with the Brazil coup in the background. So, I mean, it's just, it's just very clear what's happening. You know, they've relaxed the rules on like hate speech, on pushing disinformation. I mean, a lot of people don't want to be around that, you know, and they're going to go somewhere else. And that's what's driving uh, millions of people to go to Mastodon or just leave the platform in general. We've already kind of seen like this mass exodus from places like Facebook because people don't want to be around that stuff. It's just like a toxic environment. So it kind of remains to be seen what's going to happen. Like, uh, you know, will Twitter remain sort of this public square? I've heard a lot of people saying that, that sort of the amount of people posting there has kind of slowed down. Um, obviously, Musk is like not doing a very good job of running the company, like doing things like encouraging uh, workers to bring their own toilet paper, you know, firing uh, just staff that are at the various Twitter offices, 
they haven't like paid their rent. It seems like in some places. So, I mean, just like his reputation of being like really a bad capitalist in many ways just kind of continues and seems to be sort of running that company into the ground, which seems to be hurting his other assets, such as like Tesla and things like that. It remains to be seen if he's going to like sort of pass the uh, football off to somebody else, um, which I'm, I'm assuming will probably happen. I think ironically in the end, if Twitter remains sort of, this thing that's like too big to fail and sort of remains this the space where like journalists and celebrities and politicians go to announce things um, and kind of remains like the zeitgeist that it is now, even though like a very small amount of the population, you know, has a Twitter and is on Twitter and posts on Twitter. Um, I think the, the people that will benefit the most from voices like ours being removed is, is like neoliberals. It's not the, it's not the far right uh, per se, because they're so much, you know, sequestered into their echo chamber. Um, you know, it will be the neoliberal class that benefits from us being removed because, you know, the, the section of dialogue is, is made that much smaller. I do think, you know, one of the things I will say on this is that, um, you know, there was a post by Charlie Kirk from turning point USA, uh, recently while this banning was going on. And he was essentially arguing that, um, you know, while free speech was sort of like a, a nice ideal to ascribe to the threat that the left, uh, presented, to society was so great that it was more desirable to essentially like ban the left and ensure that, that they are just like pushed out of, you know, all avenues of public life. Um, that was more important than upholding the ideals of free speech. So I think that, that there's been a real kind of shift in the, the way that kind of the right frames this as opposed to like, you know, we are the free speech warriors, you know, we are here to defend, you know, the dissidents right to, you know, say edgy things, blah, blah, blah. I mean, of course we could kind of see through that, you know, a couple of years ago when that was sort of the, the, the way that they describe themselves, but now they've kind of made this turn because they really can't say that anymore. And now they're just basically saying like, no, we've just got to basically silence these people and smash them and sort of this kind of, embrace of like anti-democratic even anti-free speech kind of positions uh you know it's much more openly authoritarian which more openly kind of pointing towards fascism you know we've got to like silence these people because they represent this omnipresent threat to you know western civilization or however they want to frame it so you, like i said at the start you were founded in 2015 and a lot of things have happened since then. I don't know exactly where in the year you were founded or when you, you came together, uh, but you know, Trump was gearing up for his campaign and then we had the Trump presidency and all the, everything that went in with that. You know, we had Charlottesville, we had a lot of stuff. So what do you think for you are the most kind of significant things that you've covered as a, as a site, as a collective? Um, I mean, there's been a lot. I mean... I think for people outside of the United States, uh, there was really this shift in late 2015 going into 2016 where it just seemed like things reached this fever pitch. And I would say like when Trump came into office, it just felt like uh, people were running full steam ahead. 
And it really took, uh, I would say, until about 2018 or so where things, I wouldn't say things slowed down, but kind of like uh, the pace kind of um, evened out a little more. And then you had 2020 just explode in multiple amounts of ways, you know, from the pandemic, from the George Floyd uprising, uh, and then you had January 6th. Um, and now we're entering into this post Biden period where uh, I think we're have yet to kind of see like what's about to happen. I think this year is going to be very interesting. Uh, there's signs that, you know, an economic crisis may hit again. Um, you know, it remains to be seen like politically what's really going to shake out. Uh, but I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens between now and the next election. Um, in terms of like the big things that we covered, I mean, obviously the rise of, you know, the so-called alt-right and anti-fascist opposition, you know, it's interesting when we started the project, uh, even though some of us had been involved in anti-fascist organizing in the past, um, it was almost sort of like a joke that, cause you know, we were talking about like, you know, the different kind of like tags that we would put on like, you know, for articles and stuff like that. And we came to anti-fascism and, uh, it was almost sort of like, uh, like, Oh yeah, people still do that, you know, because in the United States, uh, besides sort of the, uh, the anti-immigrant protests that happened around 2005 and 2006 from the far right, um, there was a really lull, uh, in activity from them. You know, the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, by that time, sort of the white nationalism 1.0 set, you know, the cre creativity movement, um, you know, Aryan nations, like a lot of those leaders, like Matthew Hale went to prison, uh, you know, Butler died at Aryan nations and that compound closed. Uh, you know, a lot of the skinhead crews and gangs kind of like came and went you had groups like the national socialist movement that you know couldn't really muster that much or they would have just kind of like you know really milk toast rallies of like 10 people surrounded by 100 cops or something like that so the idea that there was sort of this rising white nationalist threat was was kind of silly you know there were certainly like neo-nazi skinhead groups out there and like groups like the Klan. But the idea that there was like this burgeoning far right presence wasn't something that was really kind of like on the radar of a lot of folks. And obviously that was growing beneath the surface. Um, and by 2015, obviously you have things like Gamergate starting yeah. to happen. Um, but what really kind of changed it for us uh, was that, you know, the, uh, the Dylan Roof massacre happened in, in South Carolina and out of that, you know, he himself was a white nationalist that sort of came from like this growing like all right subculture. But there was a, a push to remove Confederate statues and monuments out of society and the kind of far right and the alt right really was able to kind of like insert themselves in that. Also, like by the end of 2015, you started to see things like uh, far right trolls from 4chan going out to like Black Lives Matter protests, shooting at people. You had neo Nazi skinheads in Olympia showing up to support the police against Black Lives Matter uh, protests and stuff like that. And then Trump happened. So, um, 
you know, they were able to kind of like move off the internet and sort of enter into real, you know, a real in light, you know, real into the real world. Um, so all of a sudden there was a, a real shift, you know, in a, in a matter of months. Uh, and we realized that, that all of a sudden, you know, there was another social force out there that was seeking to be on the streets, be engaged and uh, push back against, you know, what autonomous social movements from the left were doing. And by 2016, the summer, you know, that was, you know, very clear. Uh, groups like Identity Europa had started to do stuff. You had the Trishless Workers Party had a rally in Sacramento, which I think we can credit them with really sort of pushing the media uh, to just hyper focus on this word Antifa because uh, Heimbach branded that rally in Sacramento in 2016 in the summer uh, as an anti-Antifa rally, which in itself was in response to anarchists and other leftists and anti-fascists going out and opposing uh, Trump rallies and stuff like that. So it was their kind of way to sort of like insert themselves into that discussion and try to like, you know, get Trump supporters support. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I mean, there's, there's just so much that happened. I mean, 2017 was really uh, just an explosive year. You had this trajectory that kind of like started with Sacramento, you know, Trump was elected, you know, there were riots across the country, student walkouts, you had J20, obviously. Um, and then, you know, there was just a succession of demonstrations, you know, there was pro-Trump rallies that were opposed, like right off the bat in March. Uh, one of the big things that happened was Milo was shut down mm. at various uh, speeches uh, in California and other places. Uh, which set in motion a lot of far-right activity. That's one of the reasons the far-right kind of like chose Berkeley as this battleground, which led to a series of demonstrations there. And then that really led up to Charlottesville. And then Charlottesville happened in the aftermath. I mean, by the time that that day was over and Heather Heyer was, you know, tragically murdered, you had thousands of people on the streets across the United States you know, in the next several weeks, you had like 40,000 people marching in Boston. Uh, there were alt-right rallies that were called for in the Bay Area, which literally tens of thousands of people, including like unions and different workplaces were walking out. Sort of this, like this kind of like left-wing sort of like dream scenario. Tens of thousands of people um, on the streets against this stuff. Uh, so, yeah, it was this huge turning point. Um, and there was like, you know, there's a joke. I think a lot of people kind of talk about like there was like two weeks in America where being an anti-fascist <laughs> was cool. Uh, so, <laughs> so there was like this real sort of turning of the tide, uh, you know, the alt-right in many ways just kind of broke and a lot of people were driven out of their community. I think and, you, and you saw jobs. that with Richard Spencer particularly, you know, he had these, he was quite successful before Charlottesville with these uh, university campus tours, this free speech position, you know, I should be allowed to speak, you know, saying, you know, his uh, uh, avowedly fascist stuff. And after, you know, in the later years of the, of the Trump presidency, you know, he had a, a university campus tour be completely shut down because of these kind of escalating and consistent counter protests to his speeches as well. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there was a, you know, I think it's funny because he never really did that many <laughs> campus events. I think he did like three or yeah. four ultimately. Uh, you know, he did one in, in Austin, which was opposed, and like a lot of the students came out and just like uh, literally chased like Heimbach and some of those other people like off the campus. Um, you know, like the event itself still went on because the, the university was there to facilitate that and arrest anti-fascists and stuff. Uh, he also appeared, I think, in another Texas city where like kind of the same thing happened where like the university allowed it to happen. But because of the police and the infrastructure there. But I mean, there was like mass demonstrations and, you know, people were very obviously upset, but yeah, like after Charlottesville, uh, he came to Gainesville, Florida. And uh, yeah, that was just like massive opposition, thousands of people out, you know, the, the event itself was totally disrupted. Uh, Spencer and like Mike Enoch. And, um, you know, then at the time, the leader of identity Europa, um, what's that guy's name? He he has, his name is a reference to the British fascist, uh, Eli oh, Mosley. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. They just look like really pathetic clowns. just kind of like crying about people interrupting them. I mean, you know, their whole like attempt to protect, to project strength was just like really pathetic. And like, it was really clear. Like the only reason they were allowed up there was because the police were you know protecting them. And, um, they had like, you know, 10 people out to support them, um, including people like the current leader of uh, Patriot Front. And actually there were documents that were leaked afterwards that showed that, uh, you know, Richard Spencer and his crew had basically uh, gotten like the Patriot Front people to act as their security. And that event actually ended with some Patriot Front affiliates shooting at some counter protesters who were just sitting at a bus stop waiting to like go home. And they got out of their car and they shot at them. And luckily they didn't hit them, um, but you know some of them were arrested and are still doing jail time. To what I, from what I can remember, um, but yeah. And then again in 2018, Spencer again tried to do another event in Michigan, and they kind of sequestered him into this like livestock, uh, in, like building at a college campus that was really far out. And there was like a large coalition that was formed of like anarchists, DSA, different left wing groups, different community groups that came out. And, you know, there was a brawl between them and the Traditionalist Workers Party. And that event was just a total shit show and was totally shut down. Um, and that was kind of seen as the breaking point of the alt right in many ways. Because right after that, Heimbach had his sort of fall from grace in which uh, his love triangle between him and his father-in-law and his mother-in-law kind of came out of the open and that whole group split apart. And, um, you know, Spencer basically famously declared Antifa's winning and the alt-right sort of like in that inclination sort of had kind of run its course in a lot of ways. Um, but I mean, beyond the, beyond the far right stuff, I mean, there was a, <laughs> there was a lot of things we covered that happened, you know, over the course of, you know, the last five years, I think some highlights are like the West Virginia teacher strike, the prison strike that happened in 2006, there was the abolish ice movement. Um, you know, there were various fights against pipelines, whether it was, you know, at Standing Rock, uh, in different, uh, states, um, 
you know, there's the growth, growth of things like the autonomous tenants movement. Uh, there's ongoing fights against uh, the eviction of houses encampments. Uh, there's, of course, you know, the reaction to the rolling back of reproductive freedom and autonomy uh, last year. And the George Floyd uprising, of course, was a huge milestone. So, I mean, there's been like this constant you know, every year there's these big things that happen. Um, it, you know, a couple of takeaways I would say for those outside the U.S. that we've seen is there's there's a growing amount of regional capacity, it seems like, for autonomous movements from the left. A lot of growing infrastructure. You know, one of the things we saw in the aftermath of COVID was kind of the growing of mutual aid, but a lot of like anarchists and other autonomous anti-capitalist groups uh, starting things like community centers or grocery programs, but really just increasing the amount of infrastructure that the movement has. Um, and also just increased organizing capacity. Uh, you know, things that, you know, 10 years ago people were talking about, now people are doing those things, like having the ability to start mass tenant organizations the ability to uh, be in solidarity with things like large prison strikes um, and just the building of networks and, and groups that can engage in that mass organizing is all very uh, something that's happened over the past couple of years that, that comes out of struggle and also people kind of rising to the challenge of the present moment. Um, in terms of like anti-fascism, which I know this show focuses on, I think we've seen a lot of people building coalitions, uh, people being able to uh, at least help in the bringing out of mass numbers of folks. Um, I think we've seen at times uh, people being outflanked by the far right. So for instance, like in DC, uh, there were some attempts to counter some of the lead up to like the stop the steal rallies, but it was just clear by the time that January 6th rolled around that people just didn't have the numbers to turn out to oppose like, you know, tens of thousands of Trump supporters that were coming from across the country, especially after like Biden had won and just the kind of like the liberals were just yeah. not there. Um, but at the same time, you know, people, people didn't give up. I think that's one of the, the key things. Um, and people are able to adapt to the changing terrain. Uh, so for instance, like now, I think what we're seeing in the United States is sort of an, another wave of anti-fascist activity as the far right has really pivoted and put all their chips into attacking the LGBTQ community. And we've seen people really step up and um, been really successful in a lot of ways. In, in making connections, building relationships, and really just kind of showing up and pushing back against that and uh, just done some amazing work. I mean, the fact that people are showing up in like really small towns and and in areas that are seen as conservative and really pushing back in a lot of big ways against groups like the Proud Boys and, and various neo-Nazi groups coming out alongside kind of more mainstream MAGA types uh, is really amazing. And that's not to say that there hasn't been like times in which the far right has like outflanked people, like I said, but people are not giving up and they're 
continuing to really push back and organize, which is exciting and yeah, inspiring. Uh, you know, like I always think it's important when doing anti-fascist activity to keep in mind the reason for why you're doing it. You know, it's not just to defend yourselves and to defend your comrades or your communities. It's also to create a space and create openings in which people can organize for liberatory goals and purposes um, free from, uh, you know, fascism. Um, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, one thing, one thing I want to impart on listeners is just to like, you know, it really felt like when Trump, you know, came into office, like between that and like Charlottesville was like the feeling of, I mean, being in a war is, you know, kind of the only way I can describe it just in the sense of just like the intensity um, and like the omnipresent threat of the period. And uh, people went really hard, you know, people like really went out there and not only like, you know, the intensity of the action was there, but also just like, you know, when like Trump came to office, there was like, big community meetings that a lot of like anarchist anti-fascists put on about like, you know, what are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do if the state does things like, you know, uh, denies trans people the ability to get hormones or, you know, moves against this population or something like that. And, um, you know, you had things like, you know, one of the things that Trump did right off the bat was like the Muslim ban. And you just saw this really organic expression of people like flooding um, airports and, you know, pushing back against that. So, I mean, there was just this constant sort of activity that happened in that period. And by the time you get to Charlottesville, there was a feeling that people had really sort of like shown the regime that they were going to resist on a multiple variety of levels and fronts. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, we, so I, I think, which was interesting too, because there was really also a feeling that sort of the autonomous left forces had really kind of like come out in front and like really gone hard. But also like, if you look back, cause I'm, I'm, you know, I've been involved enough to remember like, you know, the big anti-war marches and stuff like that. Like we didn't see any of that under Trump. Like we didn't see any of the alphabet soup left groups sort of like doing these mass marches or kind of like mass, uh, kind of like visualizations of dissent against the Trump regime. Like all that was sort of gone, you know? Uh, so it really was the autonomous left formations and sort of like the organic expressions coming out of the working class itself that were really sort of like leading the way. Um, which is not to say the left wasn't there. You obviously had things like the, um, you know, like the DSA sort of like coming into its own. Um, but in a lot of ways, you know, they were more interested in, you know, pushing progressive Democrats into office than like street activity, which is not to say that people from the DSA didn't make up, a sizable amount of people out on the streets, but, um, you know, that wasn't really their thrust. Um, I think at the same time, it's important to note, to note that, um, you know, what Trump did, uh, under his presidency, like, you know, weaponized the DHS, um, you know, like under people like Chad Wolf, they literally instructed, you know, DHS agents to like play up the threat of anarchists and anti-fascists and downplay the threat of, 
the far right and white nationalists. Um, you know, they literally pushed and they literally pushed uh, conspiracies about Antifa, like, you know, as reality. Like we just on our podcast, we interviewed a journalist from Gizmodo who basically talked about during the George Floyd protests in Portland, like the DHS and other government agencies literally were looking for evidence that there was an organization called Antifa that was funded by somebody, um, which is just ludicrous. Um, But also, you know, like they, they like hell, they literally like sent out memos saying like, we're going to hold up Kyle Rittenhouse as this hero. Um, They, people like, um, you know, Bill Barr and Trump like helped facilitate like the killing of Michael Reinhall, which was a, a protester in Portland that uh, in self-defense uh, shot somebody from a far right group at a demonstration. Um, you know, Trump really wanted to invoke the insurrection act in the United States during the, during the George Floyd uprising. So we kind of like saw the ways in which the state really responded to, uh, you know, resistance movements in a lot of ways um, under Trump. Uh, I think the sad thing is that, now that Trump is out of office, uh, you know, Biden is still doing, you know, a lot of the same things. Like they're still, you know, targeting migrants under rules that Trump put into office. They're still separating people at the border. Biden has only doubled down on, you know, the funding of the police. Last year was the most deadly year in the past couple of years uh, for police murders of people. You know, we're still at over three people per day killed by the police and Biden is still championing, like, you know, fund the police, don't defund them. So there's still, um, you know, all of the things that really sort of animated anger at the Trump regime have really only continued under Biden. And I think most people understand that. Uh, but unfortunately, I think one of the things the Democrats have been really successful is channeling that anger into the election cycle or at least kind of siphoning some of it off so it's not as uh potent uh that's a lot 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 of of highlights there thank you um you mentioned particularly um that you know the far right has started to target queer communities Uh, i'm thinking particularly you know uh, kind of this trans panic that's happening um which is uh, very familiar from what we're experiencing in the uk i mean it's much sharper i think in the uk at the moment, um, but there's, there's a, like a kind of feed lo- feedback loop going on between these kind of Christian right elements in America funding um, transverbs in the UK, and likewise this kind of uh, almost feeding of ideology, feeding of kind of uh, energy or kind of viciousness from the UK as well. Um, what do you think has driven this kind of turn in the far right towards a queerphobic, uh, transphobic kind of activity? Well, I think, you know, on the far right, you know, whatever faction you're kind of looking at, whether it's like the white nationalists that want to see everything, see everything under the prism of race or like people like uh, Steve Bannon, who are like less explicit white nationalists, uh, but use terms like, you know, Western civilization and want to kind of like define things around maybe Christianity um, or you have like the manosphere or whatever. I mean, all of those sort of. Um, kind of like circles on the Venn diagram, 
they're all they're all really about like who is included and who is excluded. And I think if you look at a lot of these cycles, whether in America, whether it's like around critical race theory, or um, you know now with this trans panic, uh, it's all really about kind of like building consensus around you know who is in the in group and who is in the out group. Um, and a, and also too, I think like a lot of these people that are pushing a lot of this stuff, um, a lot of them were involved in the kind of the weaponizing around, uh, anti CRT or critical race theory. So they're using sort of that similar model where they're trying to find ways that they can kind of like, uh, build into the center and kind of like build a broader coalition, not just people that just like straight out hate LGBTQ Mm -hmm. folks. Right. So they'll try to like, kind of like build a buy-in around something like, well, we're not, you know, homophobic, but we just don't want children exposed to, you know, sexual imagery or something like that because it should be like a parent's decision, you know? So sort of like, sort of kind of cloaking, uh, like the, the hatred that way. Uh, or like another big thing in the U S has been like, well, we just don't want, you know, kids forcibly transitioned, you know, we're just against these uh, hospitals that are just, you know, you know, bringing kids in, you know, doing X, Y, Z to them. So, I mean, like, so for instance, you've seen like people like Matt Walsh and like libs of TikTok just like spread just like outright lies and like fictions and conspiracy theories. And then you'll have like hospitals flooded with death threats and stuff like that. Um, so like all of, all of these lies, all of this, you know, conspiracy theories does like build up, uh, this really like fever pitch, uh, uh, devotion, uh, from a lot of the base and a lot of, you know, the vast majority of that stuff is just like totally made up. Um, you know, like in Idaho, for instance, where, you know, there's been like a slew of, anti-LGBTQ legislation that they're attempting to pass. You know, one of the most recent ones against drag queens, I believe, uh, the basis of that was like this doctored video that came out from like some alt-right troll or something like that. So, I mean, you've just seen a lot of this stuff where it's like it's self-reinforcing. So you'll have, you know, people that are essentially political operatives sort of like set the goals. And then you'll have people that create social media uh, you know, really kind of push that to the base and then you'll have groups that go out and start to, you know, engage in protests and like carry that out. And then you'll have people like Tucker Carlson cover that activity and valorize it. And you'll have Republicans pass legislation and it'll just, it's this constant kind of uh, feedback loop. It's interesting too, in the United States, like, you know, that sort of like culture war, like engine, like every, every section of the far right, and from, you know, the Republicans to like, you know, the local group of neo-Nazis, they all kind of like feed on that hamster wheel. So, for instance, like when like attacking LGBTQ people becomes the thing, like that's all the groups do. Like that's what the Proud Boys are doing. They're going out to drag queen story hours. That's what the local neo-Nazi group is like, you know, putting up flyers about like that becomes the thing. And everyone within that sphere 
kind of like focuses on that and will just run that thing until the wheels fall off and then they'll go to the next thing. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, it's, it's intense. Like, you know, the, I can tell you, uh, from experience that like a lot of people were terrified when, you know, groups like the proud boys are, are showing up. Um, but the flip side of that is that people have to deal with it and they come together and I think two big things have come out of that, especially from communities that are largely made up of a lot of uh, liberals and progressives, people that before would have never thought they were going to like stand beside anti-fascists and like push back against the far right. Um, and, and before people that would have kind of like wrung their hands at the thought of like, you know, militant anti-fascism or community self-defense. Uh, a lot of people are realizing out of this, because of what the far right is doing is that the police aren't there to help them. And, you know, they've got to get organized and push back against these people or they're going to get steamrolled. And I think that that's, that's a huge 180 shift for a lot of folks. And especially a lot of folks politically that never would have been put into that position if not had been for what the far right is doing. And we're just seeing, you know, large numbers out on the streets, especially after things like, you know, what happened tragically in Colorado Springs, uh, where we had, you know, a anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ mass shooting at a nightclub. I mean, you know, just the threat is is very omnipresent, uh, and especially with people like Ron DeSantis pa- passing, uh, you know, draconian legislation. I mean, the threat is very real, and the threat is there. And what's ironic is that, you know, there's not mass support for, you know, attacking LGBTQ folks. That's not going to put food on anybody's table. It's not going to increase wages. It's not going to make anybody's material lives any better. But for the but for the small, small faction of folks that are into that, it's going to, you know, be that dopamine hit on their social media or when they watch Fox news to, you know, raise their fist against. And, you know, that's why there's this push by those forces to continue to go after that as the thing that they want to talk about. Of course, you know, America's got is as, as particularly kind of quite a unique history. It's, you know, it's founded as a colony on the indigenous land and, and also the, the, the kind of biggest perpetrator of kind of colonial violence in the, in the, in the present, you know, globally around the world. So there's these kind of, two imperial or two colonial factors at play at the same time in the same, you know, territory embodied by the same state. How do you think, you know, America's history, be that, you know, the, uh, you know, kind of it founded on slavery or the stealing of, in, uh, stealing of land inflects, particularly inflects US far-right movements compared to other places? Yeah, I mean, people, people from outside of the Americas need to, you know, need to understand that, you know, class society in the United States is a product of a settler colonial project and white supremacy has always been used to guard against, you know, a united class front against the ruling class. And, um, you know, many far right movements have sought to uphold the racial divisions uh, and in turn have been supported by, you know, segments of the state and the elites. Uh, You know, a key example would be after the end of the civil war in the United States, um, 
you had the growth of the Ku Klux Klan, which, you know, was formed by ex-Confederate military that was backed by local former, like, plantation owners, you know, which helped push uh, against Reconstruction efforts to, like, redistribute land and, you know, give people certain rights. Uh, and they pushed to, you know, reinstitute white supremacy, create the basis for Jim Crow, um, and push back civil rights efforts that really lasted for, you know, a hundred years and really instill, uh, these real race and class divisions in society. Um, you know, the other thing is that the state here has always relied on white vigilantism, whether that's been raising militias to attack native people, offering settlers literally money for murdering and, you know, quote unquote, clearing indigenous people, uh, you know, the creation of the slave patrols in the South, uh, the raising of militias to break strikes and stuff like that, which, you know, predated the creation of the modern police force in the United States. So the state has always had this relationship with uh, paramilitary formations. Um, and it wasn't until World War II that you really saw this inflection of fascist ideas uh, in what we would now call broadly the far right. And still within groups like the Oath Keepers, you know, you still see a desire for a return to sort of like a classical colonial sort of formation and organization of society. So they want to like return uh, U.S. society to the point in which like the sheriff is like the head uh, authority in the land and it's he is backed up by groups of militias and military forces which I mean, it's just like you know a dictatorship on sort of like a municipal yeah. level which sounds horrible but I mean literally that's like what clone you know colonial society was based around um it, but to your point you know about like the way that the history of the United States has informed the far right, you know, like, so for instance, like with the alt-right, one of their reasonings for there needing to be like a quote unquote revolutionary break with the American state. And there needs to be this creation of a white ethno state is that what they would argue is that after 1965 and, you know, immigration laws were changed and, you know, more non-whites were allowed to enter into the United States, uh, you know, essentially white elites forfeit, you know, their claim to rule and that they had essentially given up on white supremacy, according to them, and that, you know, there needed to then be this revolutionary state that's created, you know, for whites to preserve that supremacy. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you look at, if you know, turn and look at groups that would sort of present themselves as like paleo conservative. So, like, for instance, groups like the Proud Boys, um, they are less explicitly white nationalists, but still they want this quote unquote return to a society like pre civil rights um, in which uh, there is an implicit white supremacy. So, like, you know, Gavin McGinnis will talk about like, we want to you know, close the borders and like force people to, 
you know, uh, adhere to a society in which, you know, right, uh, whites basically rule, people speak English, you know, men are in charge, so on and so forth. Um, so there's still this uh, push by a large segments of the far right to sort of like, quote, return to some like, you know, pre, uh, pre-existing era before. Uh, you know, like Nick Fuentes talks about, you know, we don't want to return to like 1999. We want to return to like, you know, 1399 <laughs> or something like that. Or, you know, literally bringing society back to like a wow. medieval what, level. What a line that is. That's such a political, what a political platform to, to be on. Yeah, literally. I mean, talking about like, you know, men should have the right to go down to their constable and complain about their wife and have them burned at the stake and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> and I don't see how any of this stuff can like be popular on a mass scale. I mean, I, you know, and I see, I see holes in it, but I mean, definitely, uh, history or some like reading of it, uh, animates, uh, these people, uh, in a real way. Um, and, and also too, I mean, I would say I th- the thing about the American far right as well is that. You know, like I said before, after World War II, there was this mass inflection of of actual fascist ideas. So you saw, like, for instance, a lot of the a lot of the Klan groups really became enamored in like, you know, neo-Nazi imagery and ideas. Um, You know, you had things like the creation of the American Nazi Party, which like splintered into a million different places. And then you had the, you know, the growth of neo-Nazi skinheads. You had things like the National the National Alliance, which was a, a you know, very large neo-Nazi group under William Pierce, who of course wrote the yeah. Turner Diaries. Um, you know, that had an inflection into the militia movement. So, I mean, there's been a delineation of fascist ideas, but but by and large, a lot of these formations are do not see themselves within a fascist trajectory. I mean, we, you know, people, as people who study fascism, we can kind of look at them and say like, yes, in a broad sense, they are fascist in the same way that, you know, other groups that don't consider themselves fascist, we could say like, so for instance, like the, you know, the Christian nationalist movement or dominionist could like broadly be conceived as, as fascist as well. Um, but I think it's important to point out that a lot of these formations uh, do not see themselves as fascist. They see themselves as returning to uh, a classical colonial American project you know, whether it's like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or even the Groypers, uh, which I think is important to understand, you know, for those that are looking at the the U.S. far right. You know, it's not just people that are obsessed with Hitler. It's people that are obsessed with this idea of what America is and, you know, their interpretation of it. You mentioned earlier that one of the big kind of big Burst of activity was around the 2020 and the and the the BLM uprisings that you know broke out across the U.S. and you know muck around much the world following the murder of of George Floyd by uh, a police officer. Um, well, this is a question we've asked a few of our guests on the show, and it's always interesting to get perspectives. Um, how do you kind of envision anti-fascist movements and anti-racist movements interrelating with each other? I.e., do you see anti-fascism as a separate from anti-racist work? Or like a, a a part of a broader a broader struggle. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, one thing I would point out is that you know when 
when anti-racist action in the United States formed, which is like a huge touchstone for the movement here, and a lot of uh, you know movement elders that are still around today came out of that. When it formed, it made a clear distinction in calling itself anti-racist action uh, as opposed to anti-fascist action, which was sort of the group that uh, existed that they were sort of looking at um, within like a you know kind of like tactical and and organizational lineage that was happening in the the UK which of course did you know amazing work and you know, encouraged people to look into that history um, but like AFA was sort of a model that people uh, in the US were looking at but one of the reasons they wanted to define it under the banner of anti-racist actions they wanted to make that um, make that point that it wasn't just against fascism. It was against white supremacy writ large and these wider uh, systems of domination. Like ARA made the point that they were uh, pro-reproductive freedom, uh, pro-abortion. You know, they would go and defend uh, reproductive clinics and abortion clinics and stuff like that, which is really important. Um and just to make that point that not all of the things that they were opposing and mobilizing against could be seen under the banner of fascism. And I think that that was a very uh, smart way of framing that and understood very much the context in which people are organizing the United States. So I would say, like, I think in, in the U.S., in a lot of ways, people make that delineation between quote unquote anti-fascist and anti-racist as sort of like a, a way of breaking people apart tactically. It's like the anti-fascists are the one in block that will go and like be on the front lines and confront. And the anti-racists are sort of like the mass community people supporting that are there with like the signs mm-hmm. and stuff. But I think, you know, obviously we want people to have, you know, like a revolutionary analysis of the way that, you know, fascism works, the way that the far right operates, uh, but also, you know, an understanding of the way that white supremacy exists and the way that the state uses it to break apart the working class and like all of these aspects. So I I think sort of like kind of like breaking down those divisions. I mean, I think all of them are important. Um, you know, I think actually, you know, when, looking back over the past years of activity, I think, um, you know, there needs to be more work in sort of like putting these ideas out there. Like, you know, what do we mean by the three-way fight? Like, what do we mean by white supremacy? Does that just mean people with like, you know, pointed hoods in the night, like burning crosses? Or does it mean these like broader systems that have been the product of the state pushing certain policies? Um you know, how does, you know, racism divide uh, working class people? You know, how is this not in our interest to continue this system of like this racial apartheid and like, you know, caste division? Uh, so I think all of those things are, are really important. Um, I think the one of the things that the constant like rate of activity has done is that it's basically uh pushed sort of like the educational aspect uh into the into the arena of like the organizing around events and stuff so i feel like a lot of the delineation of the ideas and the talking points and like the 
the ideology, if you will, of this stuff kind of like gets sequestered into the organizing around that or like, you know, people having those sort of like, uh, you know, constant debates over tactics and strategy. That's where it kind of happens. And then in the Lowell period, um, there seems to be kind of like less of that. And there needs to be instead, I think, more. Like we need to find a way to like really kind of like have these discussions like in mass. We need classes and seminars and, you know, online talks. And of course there are, you know, there is that happening, but I think we need to put, uh, I think movements need to put more stock in that, you know, really trying to get these ideas out to people, you know, especially at a time when, uh, you know, a lot of people are looking at the far right, you know, they are looking at, you know, these divisions in society. Um, Because if we don't, I think the center is going to, you know, the way that they're going to frame it is that, you know, the two extremes on the edges are just, they're the crazy ones and everybody else in the center is really kind of like sane. And we just need to kind of like buffer society. So the extremists on the edges, like don't have any voice and that, you know, the rest of us can get back to living and we'll just kind of like brush over all of these race, gender, and class issues between ourselves and just get back to being, you know, consumers and workers in this happy capitalist democracy and everything will be fine. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we can't uh, brush aside the, the need to educate people and really have those conversations and have a way to, to get those critiques out there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that's, a, that's one of the better answers we've had, actually. So, well done. So yeah, I think you did mention it earlier in the interview, but another big difference between UK organising is access to firearms. Like in the UK, we would never, um, you know, the idea of a gun being at a, a, an anti-fascist demonstration is completely unheard of. And if it that did happen, you know, it would be very, very newsworthy in the UK. Um, of course, this is not this is not the case for the US. What role do you think firemans play in demonstrations and counter demonstrations in the US? Well, I think the first thing for people to understand is that it's not the same across the United States. Like different states have different gun laws. Uh, you know, a lot of states you can't open carry, you know, famously, for instance, in California, because of the state trying to repress the Black Panther Party, you cannot open carry uh, currently. Other states you can, you know. So, for instance, you know, in some areas you can have, you know, ARs and everything else out. Um, you know, of course, there's different laws and stuff, you know, what you can and can't do um, with weapons. And also, too, there's not like a, an agreement in the movement about arms, too. I mean, some people are more pessimistic about people being armed. Uh, some people think it's, you know, smart in some instances. I think as sort of the trajectory of, of anti-fascist work right now has been more in like doing security and showing up in support of like things like, you know, drag queen story hours and, and pride events and stuff like that, where, you know, the, the goal is not to like, you know, push XYZ neo-Nazi group or proud boys off the street. It's essentially to like do security or support or make sure this like kids event goes well. And the, the anti-fascists themselves are not trying to be the center of attention or like the thing, like they're just there to like, you know, act as like a buffer against the far right. 
I think in that instance, uh, firearms have made sense, especially when the far right has like been bringing out firearms themselves too. And their whole point is like provoking people, you know, putting cameras in people's faces, trying to instigate fights and stuff like that. I think this, this may sound like contradictory, uh, but I think firearms in a lot of those instances have gone farther to sometimes de-escalate the situation uh, than they have in like sort of like ratcheting up, you know, the threat of violence. But of course, anytime that firearms are present, you have the potential that, you know, people are going to shoot at each other, which is, you know, quite scary. Um, and there has been instances like, for instance, in Olympia, there's been several uh, times in which in the Pacific Northwest, when there have been gunfights um, and both anti-fascist and uh, people on the far right have been shot, uh, you know, numerous times. There's been numerous demonstrations in which, you know, it's uh, there's been crossfire or people uh, defending themselves, you know, on the anti-fascist side. Um Or people on the far right, Um, like, for instance, one of the last big mobilizations that happened in Portland in which the Proud Boys had like a rally in this like vacant Kmart center and then people came and um, confronted them like that ended with somebody in downtown Portland just shooting off and trying to uh, hit anti-fascist protesters. Um, Yeah. So it's 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 definitely a reality, and it's something it's definitely in the mix. I think one of the interesting things about the present time, though, is that because there are so many people and there are so many groups uh, doing different forms of organizing, like people aren't sequestered into kind of like, well, we're doing this, or you know, we're with the IWW's General Defense Committee, and we're doing kind of like this model of organizing. So it allows us to kind of like take stock of these different strategies and see uh, their successes and failures, which is, I think, is important to do in this moment. And as of recording, we just had the second anniversary of January 6th, which we briefly touched upon earlier. Um, You know, we all remember the images of the, the, the QAnon shaman with the crazy headdress sitting in the, you know, kind of a bizarre scene sitting in the house chamber. Um, but you know, it didn't. Obviously, it hasn't stopped there. There's been this massive state repression of, 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 of this, of this. What happened to the participants in that? Um, uh, uh, you know, and, and there are arrests and jailings and all this kind of stuff is going on as we speak. And of course, you know, the the, the House committee is just wrapped up uh, recommending charges against Trump himself. Um, what do you, for you, what are the most some of the most significant things that have come out of? Of that, and do you think it, it ultimately was harmful or, or helpful to U.S. far right movements? Well, you know, one thing I do want to say is that we have uh, one person, Alex Stokes, who was uh, anti-fascist journalist and, and activist yeah. that was in Albany, New York. There was a smaller, much smaller demonstration that happened at the Capitol. There, uh, he intervened in a fight in which Proud Boys were attacking people. And he now has been given a 20-year sentence, which people are hoping to, you know, overturn. But really, we kind of want to put him on people's radar. He needs a lot of support. There's articles up on it's going down. Uh, you can find information on him. Again, that's Alex Stokes. So I kind of want to really kind of put that on people's radar. But, you know, 20 years is a long time. Um, but, 
Yeah, it's interesting. There's recently been an uh, the kind of like online channel All Gas No Breaks, which now goes by Channel Five. They just released um, a documentary, and they have amazing coverage on stuff. Uh, but they just released a documentary. Um, I love it here. I think is the title. Um, I really kind of don't like the framing that they have. You know, they kind of like focus on this idea that like the American news media has sort of uh, kind of like divided people and like use the culture war to, you know, just kind of like divide the population and make money off of it. And like the, you know, basically J six is the end result of like this, you know, crazy culture war and both CNN and Fox news, just like dividing people, which, I mean, there's, there's a large segment of truth in that, but I think what that kind of like dances away from is the reality that, that they very much tried to engineer a coup in which, both Republicans uh, tried to, you know, use this whole thing about, you know, electors and, um, you know, like denying uh, the the electoral count um, at the same time utilizing far right forces on the ground uh, during the January 6th protest, you know, all at once to really, you know, install Trump as this unelected a dictator over the United States. And I think that, you know, we need to really kind of like grapple with this. And I think, um, you know, understand, you know, that they really tried to push that forward. And of course the really kind of looking at it holistically is not something that the no. January 6th committee is doing, you know, instead you're just getting like, you know, people that really got wrapped up in the people that really got wrapped up in the moment and like were involved in storming the Capitol are getting, you know, like six months to two years in jail and stuff like that. You've got people like Stuart Rhodes, like getting with sedition charges. But in terms of like, you know, looking at the DHS, the FBI, uh, where there is a lot of sympathy for these movements and crossover with the far right or people that were involved in like the Republican party with their role in the coup and stuff like that. I mean, that's not on the table at all. You know, uh, the, the democratic state is very, very dedicated to, you know, preserving the Republican party as this entity that's going to be part of, you know, governing the United States. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we kind of need to have that in mind going forward. And, you know, they're still trying to do the same stuff. I mean, the the Republican Party is still, uh, you know, in a very much uh, anti-democratic push, whether that's trying to, like, redistrict things or, you know, push hundreds of thousands of people off of voting rolls or roll back voting rights or, you know, trying to organize a different coup. I mean... And, you know, folks like Ali Alexander are very much still in the mix. Um, I think, uh, you know, the the Yay campaign, which we probably won't even get a chance to talk about, is just one example of, like, trying to push the Overton window even farther. Um, I think the big thing about January 6th, though, is that, you know, anti-fascists were kind of eclipsed by the center uh, in that moment. You know, the center was able to kind of, like, <laughs> just come out and be like, hey, wait a minute, like, you know, maybe fascism bad and like maybe we need to like take the far right seriously. And of course, their solution was, you know, make make, you know, more cops, you know, fund the police, uh, which, of course, overlooks the fact that, you know, policing and their coddling of the far right 
over the over the last like five years, you know, essentially allowed January sixth to take place. The fact that they were more concerned with anti-fascists and Black Lives Matter on January sixth than they were the far right. I mean, you know, the crossover between these groups. I mean, all of those things aren't aren't on the table at all. Um, but yeah, more cops and also like you know we need new domestic terrorism laws on the books and you know. Uh, you know, most recently we just saw like six people in Atlanta charged with domestic terrorism for participating in tree sits uh, because people are blocking uh, the construction of this massive counterinsurgency training facility in Atlanta, Georgia, that's threatening to destroy the Atlanta forest. So I think we need to like call out all of these, um, you know, false uh, solutions uh, from the Democratic Center. And, uh, you know, continue forward and continue doing the work that we're doing, continue supporting uh, the emergent working class movements that are really pushing forward. And, um, yeah, continue organizing against the far right. But, you know, just as, you know, what happened in Brazil shows, you know, not allowing ourselves to put faith in the state to, you know, rein in or stop uh, the growth of these various fascist movements because, they're not they're, I mean, we can tell you straight from America like um, they haven't done anything except enable it and on that note um, you know we'll put links to all the IGD stuff but is there anything you particularly want to highlight to people anything you want to plug before we before we get out of here please go to itsgoingdown.org uh, follow us there uh, subscribe to our podcast you can listen to us wherever podcasts can be found uh, check us out on Mastodon at IGD underscore news. We publish on social media there every day. But yeah, please check us out. We publish uh, podcasts all the time. The website's constantly updated. So please uh, follow us there, subscribe, and see you in the streets. Brilliant. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Join us for Kite Line, a weekly radio program on Channel Zero Network that focuses on issues in the prison system. With over 50 episodes already released, you can hear informative and riveting stories about the impact of prisons on people both inside and outside of the prison walls and how they fight back. KiteLine is intended as means of communication between people across prison walls. Our goal at KiteLine is to amplify the voices of those within the prison system while encouraging dialogue with those on the outside. Hear us on the Channel Zero network and visit our website for more information or previous episodes at kitelineradio.noblogs.org.